This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My gender pronouns are she, her, hers, and you are listening to our series on Venezuela. Today, I'm joined by two wonderful guests, North American Congress on Latin America Executive Editor, NYU Gallatin Professor, and author of Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela, Alejandro Velasco, and visiting scholar at the Hemispheric Institute in New York, and author of We Created Chavez, George Chicarello Mar. Now let's start with the big question. What's happening in Venezuela right now? As, as many people know, of course, from the headlines, Venezuela is currently mired in a deep crisis that is not only economic, but also social and political um, and has been going on for some years now. Uh, it's come to a head very recently, um, but I think it's important for us all to grasp the, the underlying dynamics. I know that's part of what we'll be talking about today. Um, the structure of the Venezuelan economy, its dependence on oil and imported goods, uh, as well as the political crisis of Chavismo. In other words, a movement that emerged prior to, but also solidified around the figure of Hugo Chavez, um, who died in, in the year 2013. Um, and since, in, since then, we've seen a sort of uh, an unraveling of the politics of Chavismo leading to this constitutional crisis that Venezuela is living uh, in the current moment since January 23rd. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's essentially right. What we're finding out, what we're seeing right now is basically the consummation of a 20-year-old struggle in Venezuela between um, two powers uh, that don't recognize each other's legitimacy. On one side, you have uh, a uh, National Assembly president, Juan Guaido, who represents one of the more radical sectors of the opposition, which has long been trying to, through democratic and sometimes anti-democratic means, come to power ever since Hugo Chavez was elected back in 1998. And then on the other side, you have uh, Nicolás Maduro, who was uh, Hugo Chavez's um, self-designated uh, successor, um, who won elections in 2013 upon Chavez's death by a very narrow margin and whose six-year term of office um, has been marked by severe political unrest and then uh, collapsing economy, uh, not only as a result of the falling prices of oil, which, as George mentioned, is what Venezuela depends on, but also because of significant amounts of corruption and mismanagement within the government, in addition to um, U.S. sanctions that have been imposed um, going on now over four years, first directed at individuals, but at least now for two years since um, Trump was elected, um, really uh, aimed at Venezuela's economy writ large and its capacity to be able to, to raise cash abroad in order to be able to finance imports of everything from basic food products to, um, to, to medicine. And so this lack of mutual recognition on the part of both sides has really led us to a kind of zero-sum political struggle that now finds um, major international players um, backing 
um, threatening, therefore, to uh, not only to, to continue this uh, really terrible stalemate, but to, to do so with Venezuela as a proxy for larger geopolitical conflicts. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a very scary situation. As you mentioned, these, these huge political powers right now, this global alliance of nations, including the United States and Canada, are saying that Juan Guaido is the legitimate president of Venezuela. George, you said that he is part of this radical wing of the opposition. Who exactly is this man who's being described as the legitimate leader of Venezuela? And what exactly does his party stand for? I think the question, who is Juan Guaido, uh, is an apropos one, because that's the very same question that many Venezuelans were asking themselves only uh, a month ago, um, because Guaido is a relatively unknown uh, politician. I believe Alejandro has called him a bench warmer, which is accurate, um, because uh, he's a stand-in in some ways for some of the well-known, the more well-known leaders of different political parties, and particularly his party, the popular will party. Leopoldo Lopez is, of course, the most famous uh, figure from that party who was currently under under house arrest. And so, Guaido stepped forward onto the political scene. No one really knew who he was. And since then, we figured out a bit more of his backstory. Um, he first emerged, it appears, from the uh, student movements that I tracked in, in, in my first book uh, that broke out around 2007, and which claimed, on the one hand, to be uh, nonviolent, although, as I showed at the time, they were anything but. Um, although they did take advantage of the narrative of nonviolence and, and the tr and sort of nonviolent tr tactics that were being disseminated internationally. Um, and they also claimed to be nonpartisan, um, whereas, uh, again, as I noted back then, almost every single member of the leadership then joined these opposition political parties, which was the case, as we know now, with, with Juan Guaido. Since then, he's been active in different street protests um, and uh, as an activist in the Popular Will Party and now has come to the head of the National Assembly through a power-sharing agreement, not even by what we could call a, a straightforward election in the National Assembly. Um, the Venezuelan opposition often has a hard time uh, agreeing on anything. And so when they took over the National Assembly, they agreed that they would simply rotate power uh, between uh, the different parties. And so this being the year uh, you know, of, the, of Voluntad Populars, uh, in other words, popular wills, presidency of the National Assembly, Guaido was put forward as the candidate, despite the fact that his own party only has 14 seats in the National Assembly. As for what does popular will stand for, well, it stands on the, on the sort of fringe, uh, the sort of more right-wing fringe of the Venezuelan opposition um, that is very much, uh, as far as we can tell, about neoliberal economics, uh, about austerity, and about opposing the Chavista regime by any means necessary. This has been the party that more than any other party um, has, has refused to participate in elections, has claimed fraud for more than 15 years when we know there was no fraud, and has, uh, you know, and has been in this abstentionist wing, as you could call it, of the opposition. In other words, those who don't, those who don't want to run in elections and want to try to overthrow the government in the streets instead. One of the features of, of both Voluntad Popular and Juan Guaido that is often unremarked is the extent to which, um, well, two things. One, the extent to which, as in, in part because of the significant amount of international reputation and prominence that it, its leader, the Pueblo Lopez, um, carries, they've been able to really insert themselves powerfully within networks of um, geopolitical power, especially in Washington, D.C. and some European capitals. Um, many of them, including Lopez, 
have uh, either degrees from or have taken coursework at the Harvard Kennedy School under the uh, tutelage of uh, an economist named Ricardo Hausman, who uh, is a Venezuelan economist who has long been, uh, as George mentioned, sort of pushing the theory that elections in Venezuela, you know, going back to the Chavez era, were, were fraudulent and therefore um, that the opposition should abstain. So as uh, these uh, political figures from the have either um, been jailed or uh, forced into exile, they end up in places like Harvard Kennedy School working with uh, Ricardo Hausman who has uh, significant amounts of links to the policy establishment in, uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, so that's one thing to, to see about, to understand about Voluntad Popular, that they have a tremendous amount of incommensurate um, uh, to their popular standing in Venezuela itself. They have a tremendous amount of international power. Um, the other thing to think about uh, Guaido in particular is that, yeah, he absolutely was uh, you know, a backbencher within even Voluntad Popular, um, and that in part has to do with some of the reasons that George mentioned. Number one, because Voluntad Popular, even though it is the fourth largest opposition party, and as a result, um, it's why it had um, the rotation of the presidency this year. It's also in part because it is one of the smaller, even though you know within the small parties, the, one of the larger ones, um, the opposition in Venezuela um, has tended to be uh, even more radical. And what that means in the specific context of Venezuela is, as George mentioned, really any kind of unwillingness to, to participate in electoral politics um, or to do so to, to participate as a, as a more of a disloyal opposition than anything else. You know, Juan Guaido really was sort of last person standing um, because many Voluntad Popular figures have, again, been either arrested or you know, forced into exile or um, been barred from running for office because of some of these anti-democratic moves that they've engaged in. Right? So it only seemed to follow that as the rotation of the presidency went from larger party to smaller party, you would also see a hardening uh, or a radicalization of the approach of the opposition towards um, you know, towards standing uh, its, its claim to power. And when the opposition doesn't participate in elections, the justification the U.S. gives is that the elections are rigged in the first place. We've heard this from even the U.N. saying that these elections aren't fair and that Maduro doesn't have legitimacy because these elections are rigged by him in the first place. At the same time, the opposition claims that it has legitimacy and Juan Guaido has legitimacy because of their victories in the National Assembly. What is the cognitive dissonance on this? What is the truth about the legitimacy of these elections? Uh, you know, at least up until, you know, the year 2017, I would even say there was no question about the, the validity of Venezuelan elections. Of course, the opposition kept saying the same exact thing that they're saying today, that the elections were fraudulent, but there was literally no reason to think that. There were multiple levels of oversight. There's sort of a bulletproof uh, technical system. Um, and, uh, you know, and much of that remains intact uh, today. Um, what we've seen, however, is a bit of a difference when it comes to international oversight, arguments that go back and forth on both sides about who can observe the elections and who cannot. You have even the opposition urging international observers not to come uh, and the Chavistas encouraging their own international observers to come. So there's certainly debates about oversight. There are debates around what are called electoral conditions. In other words, uh, on what level the government is able to engage in, in electoral propaganda versus uh, the opposition's ability 
um, and certainly debates about who is qualified to run. Many opposition candidates have been disqualified. I, I urge a bit of caution on this question because, uh, you know, some of them are disqualified for reasons that I think many of us would find justified, whether it's corruption or engaging in direct violent insurrection against the government. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that maybe all of those people should be disqualified from running. These are part of the reason that the opposition then gave for refusing to participate in the last presidential election. And so to be clear about one thing, um, the, uh, you know, the, the, there's no question that Maduro, I think, won the last election, but it's in part because the opposition refused to run, um, which is something they had done in the past under different conditions and which has certainly, uh, you know, shot themselves in the foot uh, in the process. But part of the wager of refusing to run is that you can then even further discredit the entire system, which is the play that the opposition is certainly making uh, right now. Had they, to be clear as well, I think had they run a unified candidate in 2018, uh, they might have won. Uh, you know, it's, it's very possible that they could have won as they won in the 2015 National Assembly elections, um, which were clean, which were fair, which gave the opposition essentially a two-thirds majority in the National Assembly. And so the question of running or not running has always been a political gesture as well. And often, for many years in particular, it was, it was based on the fact that the opposition knew that they couldn't win. They knew that Chavez was so immensely popular, that the social programs were immensely popular, and that they themselves didn't offer any kind of alternative to Chavismo. Um, and so knowing that they would lose and wanting to sort of play a different kind of game of discrediting the elections and claiming fraud, um, they would choose not to run. Um, so there's been this back and forth over the years, but that's certainly heightened in recent years and has played a, a central role uh, in this tense standoff that we're seeing today. I think that what we're seeing now can't be categorized, even though I understand the political reasons why it should be seen in those terms as a battle over legitimacy. It should be seen, uh, or certainly as a battle over le the, uh, legality, right? So legal uh, claims and arguments as to who constitutionally should, in fact, be president or not president. Um, I think neither Maduro nor um, Guaido actually have a very strong leg to stand on constitutionally now. You know, engage, you know, uh, experts on the Venezuelan constitution on this point, and there's always a point after which the the, the arguments about um, why those legal standing kind of fall apart. On the other hand, it's it's also true that uh, that Nicolas Maduro, not only because of the highly questioned nature of the elections, in part as uh, as George mentioned, but also because of the significant amounts of um, existing popular discontent and rising popular discontent against Maduro, if not necessarily in favor of the opposition, uh, suggests that, you know, that, that there is a tremendous amount of, uh, of power that's at stake here um, that should not be confused for a battle over who is or isn't a constitutionally, you know, a legitimate president of Venezuela. The legitimacy question is it's an important one to ask, but that, but it, it, it tends to evolve into this argument about, you know, the, the legal claims of each side. Um, and that, I think, really elides a, a deeper problem that, that's, that's one about who actually controls power in Venezuela and what are they willing to do either to stay in it or to, um, to, to gain it. That's the, that's the real struggle that we're facing right now. And when it comes to elections, the U.S. is actually... And Many of the nations and entities recognizing Juan Guaido as the legitimate leader of Venezuela are actually not calling for new elections. Neither is Guaido. Why is that? I think there are different reasons, uh, you know, for this. Uh, 
you know, as, as, as you made clear, they haven't yet called for elections, despite the fact that the appeal to Article 233 of the Constitution, again, is a very questionable appeal. I, I don't think that the opposition has the legitimacy to use that um, article to depose Nicolas Maduro, because it, it's based on the idea that Nicolas Maduro has abandoned the presidency, which he has not. Um, but even if you were to accept that, um, the, the implication is that there would be elections within 30 days, and no one has called for that. It's been more than two weeks. And part of the reason is that they are, you know, bet, betting on a different kind of resolution to this question. In other words, they're building power internationally. They're building diplomatic recognition from the international community, um, which is a strange, on the surface of it at least, a strange strategy for a population, uh, a, a, an opposition that claims to be popular, that claims to be legitimate domestically to do. Um, and part of the justification or at least the rationale behind that is that they're also questioning the entire election apparatus, in other words, the, the National Electoral Council. And, and so, even if they were to call elections, it's not clear uh, at all who would oversee those elections. So, this is part of why they haven't called for these elections. Um, but again, it, it reveals, I think, the fact that the goal um, is to, as we've seen very publicly, create an alternative dual government situation where Guaido has access to, to bank accounts, um, to provoke a split within the military. Um, and to use U.S. sanctions, which have just been ratcheted up to an unbearable degree, to use those sanctions as a way to essentially put a vice on the country and squeeze it until something happens, um, most likely within the military. In other words, the desertion of, of generals, the refusal to recognize Nicolas Maduro, um, and a, you know, and a, a more directly, uh, you know, a coup situation. Um, but there has been no call for elections. Calling them would be possible. And, and I think, it's very difficult for the Maduro government to accept that, given that it, it is essentially a recognition of defeat and a, an acceptance of an illegitimate move by the opposition. But at the same time, it's not totally clear how, uh, you know, how else this crisis is going to be resolved. What exactly has been the United States' response on this? In terms of the U.S. response, the person and four persons who are leading this charge um, are not, it's not actually Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump I don't think could care less could care less about um, Latin America generally or Venezuela. He's canceled two uh, visits to, to to Latin America over the last two years. Two years ago, when he first came to to office, basically what happened vis-a-vis -vis Latin America is that Donald Trump outsourced uh, the region to Marco Rubio, and it's really Marco Rubio, senator from Florida, where of course there's very significant population, not only of Cuban expatriates, but also increasingly Venezuelan expatriates, who's been driving a much more, long has, has been clamoring before two years ago for a much more aggressive stance vis-a-vis -vis the Venezuelan government. And so that's why, for instance, you very early on after, you know, Trump came into office, you began to see sanctions ratcheting up, um, addressing not just individuals, but now uh, like I mentioned before, the ability, the ability of Venezuela to be able to to raise cash by way of, of bonds or other kinds of contracts, um, before pushing it further and further into the fold of countries like Russia and China and Turkey, in order to be able to um, to raise cash or to uh, to be able to, to import material from, from those places. So you know, if we think about if we think that if, if we sort of this divorce Trump from what's happening in Venezuela, and really think about it in the context of somebody like Rubio, then things become to, 
be a little bit clearer. We see this far more as a battle uh, over uh, by people whose primary interest is not Venezuela really in the region, but Cuba. Right? This is um, you know Cuba has Marco Rubio is Cuban American. He's long you know wanted to to see uh, the, the Castro uh, government and the Cuban Revolutionary government overthrown. Very disenchanted with the Obama era policies of aperture, and then once again he kind of takes over Latin America policy, begins to squeeze uh, and reintroduce um, sanctioning and, and sort of an embargo against Cuba. Um, and so, because Cuba is such a close ally of Venezuela, back to you know 2002, 2003, uh, not only to the tune of uh, tremendous amounts of um, Support by way of its doctors, but also increasingly in terms of um, you know alliances with uh, the military and security apparatus in Venezuela. You know this is Venezuela is very much seen as the as the linchpin that would then sort of un- unlock the key to uh, to ousting uh, you know the government in Cuba as well. Right. So and when you see it in those terms, then it makes a little bit more sense why people like, for instance, John Bolton, who's long. You know, made um, ridiculous claims about you know terrorist links in Cuba, um, and has seen basically uh, the road to to Tehran goes through Havana. Um, you'd see him taking this tremendously strong role uh, as he has. This is why it makes sense then to see somebody like Elliot Abrams, who you know, of course, was uh, deeply involved in the um, you know in the Contra wars of the 1980s in Central America, overthrowing. Not only democratic, you know, not only democratically elected governments, but um, but also partaking of or sanctioning um, death squads that uh, ran roughshod over entire populations of Central America in the 1980s. They are the ones that are being called upon, right, uh, into this fray, precisely because what is at stake is basically a rehashing of a uh, of a of what had been the one uh, you know major defeat of the United States and region in the context of the Cold War, which is Cuba, right? So um, I think it's important to, you know, to know that this is less, in, to the United States, this is less and less about Venezuela um, than it is about other, other kinds of states. And in regards to Venezuela's economy, a talking point we hear a lot is that Maduro is starving his own people. What is the truth about why Venezuela's economy is in this state? I think, you know, there, there are a number of factors um, in this, you know, incredibly deep and, and incredibly painful economic uh, crisis that Venezuelans are living through right now. And, you know, not, not to minimize it, but to, to frame it, uh, one thing we need to understand is the dramatic improvement in social welfare, um, in even just the level of, uh, you know, you know the, the, the caloric intake of Venezuelans who under Chavismo were eating more, were living better, had better access to healthcare and education. And the really devastating reversal of those accomplishments, uh, you know, under, you know, under Maduro, but in, in the recent years. And I say that in part to say that, you know, those voices um, that are, uh, you know, out there saying that, uh, Chavismo as a whole is a failure and, and caused this inevitable crisis. Um, I think that's ridiculous. Uh, and I think it's demonstrably false. Um, another thing that we often hear is that this is a, the inevitable outcome of socialism. Um, and we need to be very clear that Venezuela is not a socialist country. It's an incredibly capitalist country. But it's a country that in the context of global capitalism, in the context of oil dependency, 
uh, has sought to institute socialist measures and socialist controls and regulations and price controls. And as a result, um, almost inevitably in global capitalism has been punished for doing so. Rather than managing that punishment, I think in ways that it could have been, you know, you know, dealt with more flexibly uh, and effectively, um, there for whatever reason has been, uh, you know, a, a pragmatic policy that led to a lot of things getting worse. The origin of, I think, a lot of the difficulty has to do with the currency system. It's a little complicated, but it has to do with the fact that all of these billions of dollars come into Venezuela in U.S. dollars and then are dished out um, by the government to importing companies that buy food, that buy other goods that Venezuelan people need because they're not produced domestically. Um, and that when something unwinds and unravels within that currency control system, as it began to do in 2012 and 2013, it creates a huge uh, sort of level of chaos, a sort of you know whirlwind right at the center of the economy, and and you know you see huge levels of inflation, black market activity, smuggling, um, and, and corruption. All of these become incentivized under um, this under this crisis that we that has been just getting you know deeper over the past um, you know five or six uh, years. And so the blame really, uh, there's there's lots of blame to go around. To be completely honest, um, and as Alejandro mentioned. The past year, the Trump sanctions have really taken a crisis and pushed it off the edge of the of the precipice in a way by making it very difficult for the Venezuelan oil industry, in particular, to finance its continued production and access credit. And so we've seen a dramatic sharpening of what was already a deep crisis um, that you know you know for which we can uh, you know, we could distribute blame between the Venezuelan opposition, the Venezuelan government, the U.S. government, global capitalism, uh, you know. And dishing out the blame in that way, you know, doesn't really tell us much about what is necessary to get out of it. And we have a deep structural dependency on oil that is reflected in a deep structural dependency on imported goods. And until there's a sort of an alternative to this uh, structure, um, there's really no way around this crisis. This is the same structure that created the crisis prior to Chavismo, that brought Chavismo to power. It's the same crisis that's happening today. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. We're hearing a lot about socialism. We're talking about global capitalism, but there's a big gulf in understanding of what those terms even mean. What do we mean when we are saying capitalism and socialism in this context? 
I mean, capitalism as a global system uh, is something that we all live in. And Venezuela has been a part of that. And Latin American countries have been a part of that, um, you know, throughout the entirety of its existence. And capitalism was born in many ways with the absorption of Latin America into a global system. Um, and what we've seen over the centuries, if we're speaking in that, in that way, are a, a series of strategies to uh, resist that. Um, ways for countries that are entirely dependent on this global economy to ratchet back that dependence. Um, that, you know, you know, countries that as a result of, uh, you know, uh, of the pressures of the global economy are forced to into monoculture, into selling, for example, coffee or bananas. Um, and as a result, um, find themselves inevitably dependent on importing more expensive goods that put them in debt. So you had countries attempting to turn away from the global system on an individual level in what was called sort of autarky in the attempt to uh, sort of cut themselves off from the global system. And this didn't work very well, in part because, uh, you know, as we see in Venezuela today, when you're isolated, um, very, very bad things can happen. and You have no one to fall back on. Chavismo as, as a structured response to um, global dependency and Latin American dependency in particular, sought to build regional alliances. And this was incredibly successful. Um, you know, alliances across Latin America between what, you know, countries that are often collectively known as the pink tide, these sort of left-wing progressive governments, so that if a country entered into a crisis, they could find some help from another country. So that, for example, there's a sort of uh, support structure um, in place so that instead of going to the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, instead of going to the U.S. for aid, um, countries could turn to other regional actors in Latin America. Um, but part of um, the, uh, you know, U.S. strategy, I can say, but also the strategy of the Latin American right has been to pull apart this unity. And that's been very effective. You've seen the, you know, Brazil, Argentina, many other countries falling to the right. Um, and, you know, through elections, but also through sort of semi-constitutional measures, um, even, uh, you know, what you could call a, you know, congressional coup in, in Brazil. Um, and as a result, um, you know, Venezuela is back in a situation of very little support. Um, and so, attempts to build these socialist alternatives um, becomes very, very complicated. Um, and, and, you know, and you end up struggling against the very texture of the economy. When you have, for example, Colombia, the Colombian border, the Brazilian border, Venezuela has incredibly cheap gas. The, the price for gasoline, which, you know, comes from Venezuela, although mo much of it is not refined there, um, is incredibly low. So, what do people do in the context of global capitalism? They smuggle it in mass across the border to Colombia and sell it for a much higher price. When you can't escape from global capitalism, it becomes very difficult to build a socialist alternative. But it also becomes much more imperative to really make the leap to socialism. In other words, to not attempt to engage in half measures to regulate capitalism, which proves incredibly difficult to do, but instead to leap directly to direct attempts to um, build grassroots socialism, which has been the case in what are called communes in Venezuela, where people get together and democratically decide what they want to produce, and they produce it, and they manage it, and they decide what to pay, and they decide how to how to treat the workers, and they reinvest, um, you know, their profit in the community. This is an incredibly small experiment within the Venezuelan economy, but it points toward a real alternative that has not really uh, existed in many other places on earth. Of course, there are really strong class dynamics here. We talked about the student uprising. What exactly are the class and racial dynamics going on here? What are the demographics of these movements and who's leading them? 
Well, I think that they have shifted over time, but in general, Venezuela is not unlike many other countries in certainly the Circum-Caribbean or other parts of Latin America in which class and race have strong correlations with one another. And that extends deep into history, going back to the colonial era roots of um, hierarchy that uh, privileged whiteness um, and lightness over uh, blackness and darkness. And then that basically uh, formalized a system in the context of uh, post-independence that, um, even though it didn't you know, constitutionally um, acknowledge the equality of all races and of all peoples, in practice, as of course is also true in the United States, uh, parlayed benefits and, um, and rewards very differently depending on this correlation between um, the shading of one's color, uh, one's skin color, and um, their position in the spheres of power. Venezuela is uh, you know, far more than many other countries a mestizo country. People you know, probably proclaim themselves in more mixed race than in many other countries of, of Latin America. But nevertheless, you know, you still walk around poor parts of, for instance, Caracas, the capital, or even just generally in Venezuela, and you see far more the darker or complex peoples, more indigenously complex peoples than you do in the wealthier parts of um, of, of the cities or, uh, or town. And so this has mapped onto uh, the political dynamic in Venezuela insofar as it is the, um, the, the this large sectors of the population which were broadly, even though at some point included within the fold of a, of a democratic Petro state in the 1970s, by the time that Petrostate began to collapse in the 1980s, they were the first ones to suffer the brunt of, of the crisis of austerity policies, of state repression, um, uh, of, un, of unemployment as a result of privatization, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so when Chavez comes into the scene in 1992, first um, during a failed coup and then um, subsequent to his being pardoned um, as a presidential candidate, one of the major things that he holds up is the idea that this uh, you know, group of Venezuelans who have been excluded from the two-party system um, should be should be at the center of, uh, of Venezuelan politics. Um, and so, you know, he was very, and he himself, Chavez himself, was much more mestizo and mulatto than many other, um, not only Venezuelan presidents beforehand, but also, you know, political leaders, uh, major political leaders in Venezuela. Um, and so this coupled with the discourse of a greater amount of redistribution of wealth and particular redistribution of power, because let's not, remember, let's not forget that when Hugo Chavez was first elected, in fact, Venezuela was, uh, you know, the price of barrel of oil was something like $8 a barrel. So Venezuela was deeply in the economic recession when we um, when this were selected, and it wasn't until around 2003 and 2004 that oil prices began to recover. And so at first, it was really primarily a discourse about empowering masses of Venezuela's poor and darker skin that, of course, presented a tremendous threat, uh, to some extent an existential threat, to those sectors of the population that um, have previously enjoyed the, the spoils of, um, of the Venezuelan political system. That has basically maintained itself over the years, even though um, certainly at times, uh, especially in times of, of deeper crisis, economic crisis, the disenchantment of these popular sectors who had long stood behind first Chavez and then initially Maduro has been really tested in terms of their support for the government. 
But nevertheless, their continuing levels of deep distrust for the opposition, precisely because they don't feel like they have their interests at stake, even though they talk about humanitarianism, even though they talk about human rights, even though they talk about you know, democracy, that when push comes to shove, if they were to come back to power, much of what happened you know, um, in the 1980s and 1990s might be poised uh, to happen again. Um, and they would be the first ones to be sacrificed for that um, regime. So, you know, they're very much caught between a rock and a hard place right now, um, between the, the severity of the, um, of the crisis, which tends to be deepening by the day, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, an opposition that, even though um, it speaks well about issues of human rights and democracy, has really not um, gone out of their way in any significant way to make inroads with these sectors. And I think it's really important to talk about the economic agenda here. We've had U.S. officials from John Bolton to Senator Marco Rubio admit that this is about oil. What would change with Juan Guaido in power? What is his economic agenda? Um, well, one thing you can say about this uh, sort of uh, illegitimate parallel government that Guaido is setting up is that it's actually been a lot clearer about economic policy than the Venezuelan opposition has been in more than a decade. Um, you know, as I mentioned, the Venezuelan opposition has not been able to say out loud what its economic policies would be, in part because it knows that those would be incredibly unpopular. Um, and while we haven't seen a great deal out of Guaido, um, we, what we have seen are clear nods toward um, encouraging foreign involvement in the oil industry, reversing the effective nationalization of the oil industry under Chavez. It was formerly national before, but it, it you know, really wasn't that money was not being used to help the Venezuelan people. Um, and so you have the first uh, indications that, that primarily uh, the Guaido government would set about, uh, you know, under the guise of, of reinvigorating investment in the oil industry, it would effectively begin to privatize that industry um, to give foreign corporations greater stakes in it, greater control over their, over their investments in the oil. And the zero-sum game here is, of course, that that money comes out of social programs, comes out of support for the Venezuelan population. And, you know, and that's something that, you know, many of us would expect from the opposition, but we've clearly seen that that's, you know, been indicated. Now, when the U.S. government says that they are, you know, have sort of brazenly say that this has got to do with oil, um, there's no reason to doubt that. But I think it's also got to do with politics. It's got to do with the politics of breaking up um, the Latin American left. Um, uh, of you know, certainly this this decade long obsession with Cuba, um, but also with you know righting the wrong uh, for the you know for the U.S. government of of the failed 2002 coup against Chavez, against Chavez, a brief coup that was reversed, and you know I think when they failed in that effort to unseat Chavez in 2002, um, they saw him become a greater threat, of course, to their interests regionally. Um, and so sought to work a bit around the edges, supporting a coup in Honduras, supporting um, movements on the streets in Venezuela while attempting to weaken um, the, the greater Latin American unity that had been crafted. Um, and beyond that, of course, um, the dedication of Chavez and Chavismo to a, a, what, what he calls a multipolar world. In other words, engaging just as much with Russia and with China as with the United States. Now, all of these things, of course, in the context of, uh, you know, recent and ongoing wars in Syria, for example, um, have become incredibly, uh, you know, important to uh, certain voices within the United States and certainly those that are 
uh, in power now and, and that really want to, you know, engage in, you know, a complex politics, which claims to be both withdrawing troops from abroad, but also reinforcing uh, U.S. national power um, and using Latin America and a sort of revised Monroe Doctrine of control of the Latin American backyard um, as a space uh, for reasserting that power in, in really straightforward and what would be brutal ways. What's coming in the future? What can we expect? And specifically, what can our listeners do to take action against U.S. imperialism and this undemocratic coup? I think it's becoming increasingly clear. And in fact, some um, in Venezuela's opposition have even become publicly to state this, that they really had no plan B. They, I think that they thought, um, and in part, I think it has to do with some of the pressure that they were receiving, that they were receiving internationally. Um, that the Maduro government was far weaker internally than um, it has proven to be. That the fissures within the military were uh, were far wider than they have proven to be. Um, and that all it really required was a small kind of push, and then the entire government would collapse. I think in part that speaks to why, even though in Latin America there was a very quick succession of supporting Guaido and recognizing him as legitimate, um, in part taking the lead of what uh, the United States did, which was the first country to, to recognize Guaido. In Europe, for instance, there was a little bit more hesitation and reserve because I think that they understood that without a plan B, the, certainly the short term and perhaps even medium term was going to be precisely what we're seeing now, which is a stalemate on top of um, now extremely severe sanctions, which basically uh, hamstring the complete availability of any kind of funds on the part of Venezuelans to be able to get anything from food to, to medicine from from actually uh, from, from coming into coming into the country. You know, I think that there is this thing that we're coming to this moment of realization that this winner-take-all strategy really depended on a, a rapid resolution. And to the extent that that hasn't happened, we're seeing increasing rather than decreasing escalation. That's not to say, however, that there aren't some avenues that are existing to be able to avert the worst, which I should mention is not U.S. intervention in Venezuela or, um, or just, uh, you, know, you know, for instance, calling the election. The worst would be what we're seeing now, which is just a deepening stalemate with no end in sight, uh, in which then Venezuelans themselves in Venezuela are the ones who are going to be continued um, to, to be the most harmed. What can people in the United States do? The first thing that they um, should do is not buy into the rhetoric coming from U.S. officials that this has anything at all to do with democracy or human rights promotion. They should know this intuitively because of the people who are leading it. But more specifically, they should know it because the United States, even in Latin America over the past two years, has been quite, stood quite apart from those principles. For instance, in Honduras. 2017, there were fraudulent elections that were widely derided and recognized as such, in which the United States supported um, uh, with the re-election of uh, Orlando Hernandez. In Guatemala, right now, there's a UN-mandated anti-corruption body which is being gutted by the President Jimmy Morales in a move that's being supported by the United States, even though it's widely condemned elsewhere as anti-democratic. So this isn't about democracy or human rights. That's the first thing people should understand. The second thing, however, that people should understand is that it's a complex scenario with lives at stake in Venezuela. And there are actual, already existing both mechanisms 
and new mechanisms that are emerging, the first channel humanitarian aid into Venezuela, not through this emphasized approach, which is, of course, the, the U.S. approach to try to sort of, uh, you know, hold hostage humanitarian aid as a way to affect um, you know, a particular policy outcome of regime change. Um, that's the first thing. But secondly, there are these these uh, you know, these bodies like an international contact group, which has been established and provided by countries like Mexico and Uruguay and um, some countries in Europe to try to bring some sort of negotiated solution that uh, articulates the possibilities for new elections to actually happen where Venezuelans themselves who have a say over their future in a way that is not, um, you know, that is, uh, that is not pressured, uh, you know, uh, from, from external powers. Um, that's obviously, you know, that would be the best case scenario, at least for me. Um, but, um, but right now it's looking not like a very difficult situation. I would um, agree with most of what Alejandro said and, 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 you know, add that, of course, there, you know, the, um, the situation is incredibly difficult. Um, the pain is being borne by those who have borne the pain in the past and who are consistently those who, you know, who will suffer all of the consequences of all political decisions made at the, at the top levels. Um, I think and I worry that from the perspective of the U.S. and the uh, Venezuelan opposition, um, they may be willing to, to wait this out a little bit. In other words, to essentially starve the Venezuelan economy and squeeze the government to a breaking point, um, which could lead to, you know, to different outcomes precisely because it's a strategy of tension and strategy of pressure. Um, and, and that's an incredibly, I think, dangerous situation. Um, I think the response by many uh, on the left um, has been either a sort of blind solidarity uh, for the Maduro government, um, or a sort of uh, what in Venezuela is called the Nini politics of saying, well, we're not with Maduro and we're not with Guaido. And I think, uh, you know, it's a complex, uh, you know, argument in a, in a complicated situation, but it's, uh, you know, I think both of those are unsatisfying in the sense that uh, we do need to pay very close attention to what's been going on in Venezuela. Um, and, you know, while we may have sympathy with the Maduro government, we need to understand um, what errors have been made, what powers or what sectors have been empowered, um, and what this means for uh, grassroots revolutionary sectors that want to move forward in more radical directions. Um, on the other hand, in the context of this attempted coup being pushed from abroad and, and, and from right-wing sectors in Venezuela, it seems equally unsatisfying to just simply denounce and abandon um, the Maduro government as though it had sort of no claim you know, to, to legitimacy uh, you know, in, in Venezuela. Um, and so I think pr from the perspective of the left, we need to be a lot more careful than we have been. Um, and we need to understand that you, we're not in the realm of ideal strategies at this point. And all, but also at the same time that we cannot embrace, uh, you know, solutions, um, that represent and will expand the power of the right in Latin America, the power of the U.S. government, the Trump uh, regime across Latin America. And we have to be very, very careful not to play into the hands of those sectors. Um, Unfortunately, uh, there's not much that we can do aside from engage in this narrative, you know, in, in these discussions, um, pay close attention to what's going on on the ground, be directly in touch with not, uh, you know, not, uh, you know, necessarily political leaders in Venezuela or spokespeople of the opposition or, you know, influential social media, uh, you know, like voices, um, but grassroots organizers who many of whom uh, support the goals and the objectives of Chavismo, this revolutionary process that's been going on for nearly 20 years, um, but recognize that something needs to happen, that there needs to be a step, not backward, but a step forward. 
toward, you know, sort of a more radical outcome that is more democratic, that is more participatory, and that represents the best of this process while putting the economy back in, in motion in a direction that will support, um, you know, that will support all Venezuelans. All right, great. And in closing, thank you both so much for coming on. To our listeners, to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, follow Millennial Politics on social media, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.